the Making Sense of Life podcast number 63. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sonora Heja. As we continue our conversation on a remarkable cookbook, uh, I've got Amanda Clegg here with me. Uh, if you haven't listened to the last podcast, uh, you'll if you have listened to the last podcast, you'll know that um, Amanda uh, has uh, has a passion for food and India and a, a charity called Asha that uh, works in the slums of Delhi. And she's combined those three passions with a cookbook called Hope and Spice, Authentic Recipes and Stories of Transformation from the Slums of Delhi. And I was just saying to Amanda earlier on, Amanda, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was just saying, Amanda, you have the audacity of not being an Indian person, being a white English lady who has written a cookbook, an Indian cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I, I, I put my hands up to that, but I... I, my defence is that it's not my food, it's the food of the women of the slums. I'm merely the conduit, I'm merely the person that has gone in and watched them cook and then written down the recipes. But what's remarkable, and I would encourage you, you haven't listened to the last podcast on this, because it gives you a lot of the background as to um, how this idea came about in terms of seeing the remarkable transformation of these women and families living in slums living in slums in Delhi where there is so much darkness so much despair so much to be despondent and, and negative about seeing how well starting with the work of Dr Kieran Martin in 1988 uh, in, 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 in dealing with a cholera epidemic but then moving on from there to seeing how it's not just about giving medicines and just trying to treat people's sickness but how to, how to help to empower them to be agents of change and bring about transformation. And we've seen that tra- transformation. We've ta- And Amanda's talked about that with some amazing stories of um, some of the slum dwellers and seeing how not just that they've got better health, but also have a, a, um, a vision and dignity for their lives. And we close with the story of, of a remarkable young man called Chandan who was brought up in the slums and who is now doing, was it a master's, you said, in, oh. a, a, at Imperial College? Imperial Mathematics. In, in pure mathematics, so it, it's 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 a remarkable story, and from that, um, Amanda, you got this idea to write a cookbook, uh, but a very different kind of cookbook. And with we, we talked with with Victoria Byrne, who um, to help you do that. And I feel particularly quite, yeah, um, well, yeah, quite very inspired and and quite touched by by the whole story because. Amanda, I'm one of the trustees, along with Amanda, of the Asha Charity. And I checked my records. On the 24th of August 2017, 
Amanda sent a proposal for this cookbook. And I just quote from that. She says, the cookbook would contain a selection of authentic Indian recipes sourced from the slum communities, a combination of the women's groups, lane volunteers and community health visitors, possibly with the addition of any particular slum dweller known for their cooking, along with the Yasha staff in Delhi. The cookbook would also contain stories or mini biographies of some of the contributors. So the readers get the insight into their lives, their interaction with Asha, their families, their culinary heritage, etc. These two elements, the slum recipes and the stories, will make the book unique and different from all the other cookbooks out there. And that's, in a sense, qualifies you to have the audacity to write an Indian cookbook, <laughs> as it were. I hope so. <laughs> that's right. Um, and we talked in the last uh, podcast as well, is that you also realised that although you you had certain skills, you didn't have all the skills. Like, no, who has? None of us has that. So in an amazing way, you and Victoria Byrne were brought together in this project to make it a reality. And so tell us, Amanda, what were some of the challenges and highlights in making this vision reality? Because again, as, as I keep on saying, it's one thing to have good intentions. It's one thing to have good ideas. It's one thing to have even a plan. But to execute the plan and to see it to completion, as it is with this book, and just to say it's Hope and Spice, Authentic Recipes and Stories of Transformation from the Slums of Delhi. The website is hopeandspice.com. To make it reality takes a lot of perseverance and skill. So there are various challenges along the way. Um, Asha did some initial work. So they floated the idea in the communities and said there are these two women that are going to come out. Um, so if you fancy cooking something, if you f would fancy, um, you know, putting forward a recipe, then then let them know. So there was some sort of, um, I, su I suppose the the seed was thrown out to the, to the women, if you like, to say who's interested in getting involved. Um, I think there was a very good response. And thankfully for us, because our time was slightly limited, Asha did some pre-selection Um and then we went out and we spent just over two weeks, two and a half weeks out there. Um, and we would visit a different community every day. And we would have, on average, maybe eight or ten women ready to cook for us. I mean, this this takes planning. This is just to emphasize, you visited 12 slum communities. You visited a hundred, you had a hundred different homes in two and a half weeks, which is seven, 14, let's say that's 17 days. 100 divided by 17, my math's not very good. Um, that's about 10 meals. No, no, it's a lot. It's a, I mean, it's more than three meals a day, okay? Yeah. And we're talking about good cooking here. <laughs> yeah, so um, thankfully we had elasticated trousers. <laughs> and um, obviously we didn't, we didn't eat the full amount of every dish that was cooked for us. Clearly we couldn't have done. Um, but we did eat a lot. But back to the cooking, because I think for me, one of the crucial things if this cookbook was to work was that we needed to be accurate in representing what we were shown. Um, the majority of the women cooked in front of us, but some cooked in their homes and brought us the finished dish for us. To I, I just want to say, my mum is a great cook, but and I've for years wanted to her to teach me how to cook, but if I watch her, she doesn't actually explain it to me. And she just picks, she, she, she's not written anything down and she just takes little bits. And if you ask her how long, she hasn't got a clue herself. And she, if you ask her how much, she doesn't really know that either. So I'm thinking now this is in slum communities in, in Delhi. That increases your challenge exponentially. 
Uh, yes, I guess so. But to some extent, ignorance is bliss. And we went in there and we said, look, we don't know anything about your food. So you need to tell us everything. And I think to some extent that brought out the best in the in the ladies because there wasn't a sense of competition. We weren't another lady from a neighbouring community who might end up cooking the dish better than they did. There was a sense of, you know, we want to know about your food because we're genuinely interested because we want you and your food to have a platform to go into many homes that you know maybe have never tried to cook this type of food before um but it was very interesting on day one there was quite a lot of talk of a pinch of this or a spoon of that and we quickly realized that that wasn't going to translate into an accurate representation and thankfully i'd had the foresight to take a little set of measuring spoons that raised that went from a quarter of a teaspoon up to a tablespoon and so after the first few ladies had cooked for us we would lay these out on the table in front of us and every single step we would get them to point so that we knew that we were accurately representing. Clearly, if we were watching them cook, it was easier anyway because you could see what they were putting in. And, you know, I found that very easy just to, you know, translate. Um, even if they took a pinch of something, I could, you know, I could translate that into into accurate quantities. But if if we hadn't watched them cook, it was essential that we had a universal visual um, language if you like for quantities and bearing in mind that this was all done through translation as well because I don't speak Hindi and they don't speak English wow that doubles the time as well yeah so everything had to be kind of double checked and um, and we, we we did actually quickly learn quite a lot of the names of the spices and things because obviously there was a lot of repetition of that so that was one challenge making sure that we could accurately portray their food um and it was lovely to see how proud they were. Some of these recipes have been handed down, you know, from grandmother to mother to daughter. And you're right, they haven't necessarily ever been written down before. Um, and some of them were so proud to be telling us and to have us um, write it down. In terms of other challenges, um, we faced the fact that, and I guess thinking about it in, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Perhaps this is obvious, this is, going to happen but we hadn't we didn't predict this that the ladies a lot of the ladies started to cook quite special dishes for us mm. and I guess if I was asked to you know cook for somebody from a different country I would want to showcase my skills I would want to produce maybe a signature dish or something and so we began to get some of that and when we asked them okay so you've just cooked this you know stuffed meatball dish or whatever it was how often do you cook that the answer would be Oh, at festivals or at special occasions. And actually, we it was really important to us not to have a book full of those type of recipes. So, so you communicated that before, that you didn't want ultra, ultra special recipes? Uh, well, I don't think we'd perhaps communicated that clearly enough. So after a couple of days, we had to kind of reiterate that actually we're interested in the everyday food that you cook your families. We're interested in the, you know, the dal, the vegetables, that, you know, you're going to go to the market and, and what are you going to cook? It's that sort of everyday food that we really wanted to see having said that we did keep a few uh, you know not that many but a few of those special recipes because there are some amazing showstopper dishes that and we didn't and want to lose but we wanted to make sure that the bulk of the book reflected their everyday cooking and also would be recipes that people here could cook without feeling intimidated because perhaps wrongly I don't know I certainly went with the preconception that 
Indian food was maybe complicated, that maybe would take quite a long time, that would have a very long list of ingredients um, and wasn't the sort of thing that you could quickly, you know, whip up and get on the table for the family in half an hour after work. And actually, we found that that absolutely wasn't the case. It was wonderful to see um, that so many of their dishes were, it's absolutely possible to do that, that they were they were quick to do, they were relatively straightforward, they didn't necessarily have hugely long ingredient lists. And, and I think for me, that's been one of the very exciting things about the food side of the book, is that lots of people are saying to me now, gosh, I never realised that. I, you know, I'm now able to cook Indian meals for my family regularly and everybody loves it and it's quick and it's accessible. It's interesting. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I just thinking it's like, like some of the words used for Indian food, like you know, aloo gobi, palak paneer, it sounds all very exotic, but aloo gobi is just potato and cauliflower and right. palak paneer is just spinach and cheese. Um, so, and you're right, actually, I've, I've never thought because we can get almost autistic about um, following the recipe exactly to the letter and what you're saying is that there's a lot of flexibility and, and uh, room for creativity and improvisation. And that was one of the other, I mean, that was a highlight for me of seeing women who, in some ways, their lives and their opportunity to express themselves is quite limited. Actually, to see the creativity that they can put into cooking um, was a wonderful thing. Yes, because there's a lot in their life that could, could be very, very bleak and very negative, and yet this is a, a very positive way of a very yeah positive part of their lives. Mm, absolutely, and it's a way that they can um, they can have autonomy, but they can also have creative expression. They can teach their children how to cook. They can treat their family with their you know family favorite things. There's lots and lots of things that cooking does. Um, it's not just the transactional, you know, throwing ingredients together and making a dish. And that became really clear. And actually, there's a, a, there's a quick anecdote I'd love to please, share. Please, please. Which is, uh, I hope, maybe communicates something of that. So we went to a community called Chandapuri um, one day and we had a big schedule ahead of us. And every woman had been, across all the communities, had been told, you know, it's one dish per woman. And the first lady came with her dish and that was fine. And then the next one did. And then the, the third lady came with a tray. And there were three dishes and a great big pile of Romali roti, those really beautiful thin breads. And so if you included the bread, and we have a whole section on bread, that was four things. And we all kind of looked at each other. How do you handle that? What do you do now? <laughs> and it was so interesting because... What was completely apparent was here was a passionate cook. She just couldn't be restricted to one dish. She wanted to show us kind of the range of her ability. She wanted to delight us with her cooking. Um, and it was also such an example of generosity. And we found that over and over again. Um, and it was so humbling just that, you know, for these the generosity of these women to to share these recipes with us, to cook for us, to present them to us. And the way that that was done um, over and over again was so humbling. And I, this lady was called Pinky and um, we tried her dishes and actually the one that we put in the book, um, it's a simple lamb kofta dish. But I can still remember trying it that morning. It was just exceptional. And it's one of my favourite recipes 
even now in the book. Mm. And I cook it regularly for my husband and boys. They all love it. It is one that you can get on the table in, you know, 30 minutes. Wow. And it, it it's one of those simple, you know, lamb, mince, onion, chilli, some garam masala, um, a bit of water and some fresh coriander. You know, it actually the the ingredients are, are quite few, but the sum of the parts when they come together creates something absolutely delicious. That's amazing. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about the uh, recipes and the stories behind the recipes later on. But I, do, I, I don't. What I do want to, want to just get across to our listeners as well, and just to reflect on as well, is the project management about this. Because again, this is over. Would you say? Did you say fourteen days? Seventeen days? You said seventeen days, hundred recipes. And I'm thinking now, you're you're in India. Oh, I must ask this question: Did you fall ill? Not at all. And it's quite funny, really, because when I take um, groups, volunteer groups with me, prior to this project, I'd always been really like, you've got to be so careful, you know, never accept anything. If they offer you food, don't eat it, just say no. And, you know, maybe we can have chai, but that's it. You know, I was super strict and super protective over my my volunteers. And actually, obviously, this was completely the opposite. This was going to eat anything and everything. Um, And we didn't fall sick at all. And I think the reality is it was all freshly cooked um, right in front of us. So, great. And and I think the providence of God as well, I'd have to add in there as well. Uh, But what I wanted to get is, so again, 100 recipes, 17 days. There's a lot of writing to do. So you and Victoria are are writing things down frantically. And what I'm just thinking of is making sure, and you're taking photographs, because the, the book is full of beautiful photographs of beautiful people, of beautiful food, of so many, you know, lovely things coordinating all that and not losing track and thinking who is that lady which lady goes with which food what was the recipe have i got that right here how is this going to translate it's all very well cooking it in delhi in a slum in delhi how is this going to translate to doing this in london or leeds or somewhere like that So you're right, it was, in some ways it was complicated, um, but we tried to have very careful notes. So whenever we wrote down a recipe, we would write down the community it came from, the lady that cooked it, and we would write a visual description of the And you were both doing it so you could cross-check with each other. Exactly. And that really helped. So we would identify, you know, this is the lady in the green and purple pattern scarf or whatever, because whilst at the time it's crystal clear you know you're right that uh, three months back and you're suddenly in London and you know which lady was it so we did keep very very careful notes and we would go back at the end of every day and kind of were you exhausted every night I'm just we're totally exhausted or was it or was this such an exciting thing to do that it just it drove on its own energy I'm just fascinated a bit of both I mean yes it, it was tiring because the concentration you couldn't you couldn't ever sort of just switch off because you would miss some crucial things so yes when we were there kind of interacting with them and watching and learning then we had to be completely on the ball but I think it's when it's something that you love you know I love I love food and I I found the women so fascinating and I also wanted to honor them I mean for them I felt I felt it was very significant that we were there and you know I remember one lady saying you know um how can I cook for you? You're really important and you're from the UK and I'm just here in my slum hut kind of thing. And Saying this through, through a translator. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, she looked really hesitant and I said, but you're a mother and I think we'd already you know, discussed her children and I said, I'm a mother too. And, ha- you know, 
we can just have this conversation mother to mother about how we provide for our children. And and it was just an example of what we came to see repeatedly about food breaking down barriers and food being something that, you know, the act of, of cooking and providing for other people and the act of sharing food, the act of eating together, there's so much more to it than just the transactional, you know, we need to eat to, to survive. Um, and that became really clear. And I think, I think it was lovely to see the women being affirmed. So we had to be, I, you know, it was important to me to be present to make, make sure that we were able to really do that as well. I think what's beautiful about that is that these, these are slum women who, how can I put this, who always felt downtrodden, uh, abused, um, of no worth, of no value, doing something and I don't hope this doesn't sound wrong, but uh, doing something for someone who they look up to in a completely different world to them, who's appreciating what they're doing, who's valuing what they're doing, who's <laughs> taking lots of notes about what they're doing, but in a way that's actually very affirming. It, it's not patronizing. It's not um, being obsequious or anything like that. But it's actually, as you said, mother to mother, family to family, because regardless of who you are, that's what connects us as human beings is that we come from families maybe with, with all sorts of negativity associated with that or positivity depending on the family but we but that's where we find our meaning and and what better way than through showing that love in a family than through food uh, absolutely and one of the things that we heard lots of women talk about was how they had been taught through Asher to eat together and that that is something that they wouldn't have contemplated. So the slums, like um, like other parts of society in India, you know, there is a caste system, and that is evident in the slums. It's not evident to me. I I can't understand. I don't listen to surnames and know. Yeah. But but you would know from somebody's surname. You would know from their appearance, uh, or the way they dress, or the things they do, that which 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 caste they come from. And and there's a there is a pecking order. There would be a pecking order. Even though it's outlawed by the government, even though it's not supposed to be there, and even though it has gone large a lot in the cities, but it would still be there, that kind of pecking order. Absolutely, and we would hear the women talk about that and how um, they have got into the habit now of having potluck lunches uh, once a month in the community centre, in the Asher Centre in the slum, whereby they all bring a dish um, and they sit down on mats on the floor and they eat together. And... Apparently, you know, initially, I think that was something that some of them found very hard. They wouldn't have dreamt, a, a higher caste lady would not have dreamt of eating the food from a lower caste lady. Um, but actually, the Asher staff learnt fairly early on. They took all the breads in, all the rotis or whatever, and they muddled them all up and then they put mm. them back. It's a lovely illustration. Exactly. And it actually, I think the women began to realise that one woman's bread is exactly the same as another woman's bread, really. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it was a symbolic way of saying, actually, we're all women. We work together in every other respect. So let's eat together. And they have experienced that to be such a such a unifying thing and a way that it has it has enabled them to put aside caste differences, religious differences, other differences that they they might have and and just be there as a group of women. Um, and to be able to have that sense of community as a result. And that's through food and through eating together. And I, I love that because that's, 
in a way it's what we were trying to do with the book we were trying to show the 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 power of food and the power of eating together the power of um sitting down and listening to one another over food which in a sense is the whole process that we did in creating the book in the first place was was listening to them watching them cook and then sharing the food together at the end so you know it's it's wonderful to see the way that food is being used to draw people together and to break down barriers and bonds that's fantastic to hear um let's just move on so we've we, we sort of moved from the idea to the practical details and we're, and we're talking obviously in terms of the experience of, of, of working together and, and doing that and the impact that's how you had in, in usher of cooking food together as well Let, let's let's focus on the book now and just some of the stories there because um, the way you you've laid it out is obviously you have the recipes and with the recipes you talk about um the women who provided those recipes but some of those but also in each chapter you give it a lot of detail about the life of of, of an individual um and i think it'd be really helpful to just hear some more about that great well we as you say we decided that making sure that we profiled some of our cooks was really important so 16 of our cooks we have taken a whole page to tell a bit of their story which victoria has beautifully written um incidentally for those cooks that aren't profiled you often glean little bits from the header at the top of the recipe where I make some comments either about the food or the person so there are other snippets but yes the bulk of the information about the people is in the stories Um, and that was an amazing experience to be able to hear the women describe their lives describe the difference that Asha has made Um, and sometimes that was a single woman sometimes there was a whole group of women who had been through a shared experience. Um, For example, Rajwati, um, her story is in the book. She has a lovely sagalu recipe, which is in the book. Um, But before that, you get to read about her story. And in a nutshell, she and the group of women that we met that day um, had been through an incredibly significant life-changing experience together, which is that they lived in a in a slum community together Uh, they had a women's group everything was going fine and in the run-up to the commonwealth games in 2010 um, it was decided that the government needed the land that they were on because none of these or very few of the slum dwellers have land rights yeah because it's it's worth pointing out that if you live in a slum and dwelling you don't exist in the in a sense you're yeah you can just be um, moved away at, at, at a moment's notice and, and just told to leave with, with no rights whatsoever. And that is exactly what Rajwati and the ladies around her described to us. So they described to us how some government officials came one day and they said that the land that they were living on and had been living on for decades, the government needed for a flyover um, and so they had to leave their homes. And not only that, they had to leave their homes in the next few hours. And in fact, the bulldozers then came in. um, I forget whether it was that night or the next night, but it wasn't beyond that. So maximum 24 hours notice um, to to gather what they could from their homes and vacate. And um, I've seen the pictures of the bulldozers. I've seen the pictures of the smoke because they set fire to the community as well. Um, And hearing Rajwati talk about that experience um, of already living in a slum with the insecurities of that 
but then being displaced and no one thinking about the consequences. And what happened, and she described this with tears in her eyes, was that they went and they had to live on the roadside. They lived on the roadside of a highway for three months with no facilities, no amenities at all. Um, and how scary that was. And a lot of these women at that stage were younger and had young children. Mm. How terrifying that was, trying to protect their children in that environment. Um, and anyway, it's not, it's a very happy story. The end of it is a very happy story because Dr. Kieran Martin, the founder of ASHA, um, in fact, she took a call in the middle of the night from these women when, when the bulldozers came in. Mm. Um, and she went um, with some of her staff and she stood alongside the women. And then she went into bat and she'd started lobbying the government and said, you have to, if you're going to take their land, you have to give them somewhere else to live. Mm. You know, it's, this is not okay. Um, and through her lobbying, it took about three months. Um, but in the end, they negotiated a deal whereby... Um, each household was given a small loan to buy basically a piece of land and the government allocated them some land um, in an area called Savdegevra and that's where they established a new community um, and with those loans they started from scratch and they built a, a new community and you go there and it's beautiful oh, wow. um, they've all built new homes um, and I think to begin with, it was very hard because it was a lot further out of the city. It means there's quite a long commute in. So for, for work, it's yeah. it's hard and all the amenities are not there yet. It still has no water. And I, you know, I still find that incredibly humbling and quite shocking that there can be tens of thousands of people living with. So there's no. So where do they go for the water? Water tankers come in every day um, and. Rajvati, when she was telling us this story, described the fact that, you know, some of the ladies go out to work. And so then if they're not there when the water tank comes, then they miss the opportunity. And actually now they've installed water and ATMs in the community, whereby if you come back later on, you can put money in and get wow. a certain quantity of water out. And remember, we're talking about India, where it reaches 40 degrees centigrade and it's really, really hot, uh, especially in the summer. Um, and water is very, very precious. Mm. Absolutely. So it was just an amazing story of how um, how challenging their environment could be and how even the simple homes that they did have could be taken away from them almost overnight, but how they've rebuilt and they've regenerated themselves and through kind of holding on to each other and working together as a cohesive group they've managed to create a really vibrant thriving community which is fantastic to see so and there are many stories like that that's a kind of collective community was, that was Gyanwati or Rajwati who, that so that's Rajwati that, yeah, yeah. Um, Gyanwati who you mentioned um, she comes from a community called Kaukaji and I, I, I said to you earlier on I'm, I was quite touched by that really because uh, I've been going to India since the age of eight and I have a lot of family who live uh, in Kalkaji, so who obviously live very near that slum. So it was, it was quite poignant for me to read that, really. Mm. And her, I don't think I'll ever forget her telling us her story either. She arrived and we were introduced to her. And she's a she's a quite imposing lady, a very strong-looking lady, um, and a lady with a lot of experience written on her face, if you know what I mean. And she described to us how um, when she was young and when she was newly married, she... She didn't go out. She was 
uneducated. Again, her sphere was just really a domestic one within her small home. Um, and she described the living conditions as being very difficult um, with the usual problems of sanitation and lack of clean water, etc. And she had a small child. She and her husband had a, a little boy. And when he was two, he got ill. And unfortunately, in the end, he, he became sufficiently poorly. He was taken to hospital and he died. And it transpired, um, she told us, that he died of dehydration. Simple, just a simple lack of water, that was it. Absolutely. And, and the thing about the story is she then went on to describe how she became associated a little while later with Asha. She became educated and she became trained as a community health volunteer, which meant she was one of these barefoot doctors that was helping other people in the community. And she said very proudly that she's made it her mission that no one in the community will suffer the same fate, that no one will lose a child um, through something as simple as that. And she was very proud to tell us that indeed in the 25 years that she's been working in her community, no, no child has died of dehydration. But you could also see the pain in her face as a mother that, and in a sense, the shame that she was sufficiently uneducated. She couldn't prevent her own child's death. No. Whereas what she knows now, you know, if she knew then... If she knew then what she knows now. She would have been able to. And I think that's something that she will take to the grave with her. But she, again... In some way, it's redeemed that... In some small way, it's redeemed that pain in the sense that she's been able to rescue other children from that same potential um, dehydration or other illness, really. That's right. And she, she told us with enormous dignity um, about this and with great pride that she has been educated, that she has been empowered and that she's been able to make a difference. Um, and she clearly loved, loves working for Asher. And she said, you know, it's not about the money. I don't do it for money because actually Asher, you know, the community health volunteers, I think, do get a small contribution to their work. She said it's not about that. It's about um, making a difference in the community. It's about giving back. It's about, you know, helping other women. Um, and it was just it was a very beautiful, very beautiful encounter meeting her really and her pictures in the book you can see yeah i was just looking it's, it's on page 83 and, and and then it's 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 her dishes the pilot is it the, the pilot yeah, paneer the on, on the other paneer, oh. which was absolutely yummy <laughs> <laughs> on the next page yeah, yeah. wow that, that's lovely yeah um any other anything else you you, you, you want to add or comment but uh thank you that's, that's, that's beautiful um not from the story side but there were one or oh do you do you want me to stick with the people for a minute or can i go back to the food it's, it's your podcast. Okay. You, you, you go. <laughs> so I guess I just wanted to say that for me, obviously you said earlier, you know, I'm I'm not Indian. This is this is not my culinary heritage. One of the joys of this project was being able to see women repeatedly cook and to pick up some of the the tricks and some of the sort of um, the things that make a world of difference. So, for example, you know, I come from a. a a culinary heritage where you sweat onions quite lightly, you don't tend to get much colour on them, um, and then you move on. Yeah. So that's what English and French cooking, basically. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, we watched with our jaws 
you know, practically <laughs> on the floor as these onions got browner and browner and browner. And browner. But you have to caramelise them and that, that, so that they really sort of, so you get the flavour to its full extent. Exactly. And it's such a simple thing, but it made me realise, you know, I'd always wondered why my curries at home were, you know, okay, but not great. I began to realise that, you know, just the, that process, you know, if you do that right, then you're packing in flavour right from the very beginning. And so for me personally, there was a real joy in watching these women go about their craft, which to them was completely natural and learning some of the things about making a masala or cooking onions properly. Um, you know, it was fantastic to see because it made me realise that we could actually communicate some of that mm. in the book. And so we've got a, a sort of tips and techniques section right at the beginning, which sets out some of those things about the use of chilies, about the use of about cooking onions, about having making ginger garlic paste, which again goes into so many of the recipes, making a masala properly. So um, I think for me, that was that was just a, a gift that I could take away and translate into my cooking, but also pass on to our readers, which... Oh, and also appreciate that the different styles of cooking, English, French and Indian, and, and doing diametrically opposite things, mm. and yet getting great cooking, whichever way you look at it. That's right. And I think the other thing that I realised was there is much more freedom and flexibility and creativity in Indian cooking than I than I ever thought before. I felt that you had to be very, you know, you had to stick to the absolute kind of letter of the the ingredients and that, you know, if it said a pinch of this or a quarter of a teaspoon of that. But actually, um, again, we often find women saying, you know, oh, you'll find lots of people putting garam masala in, but I prefer not to. It doesn't suit my taste. But if you want to go right ahead, you know, yeah. this sense of um, freedom, freedom. Exactly. And again, back to that creativity, the sense of, you know, customizing it, doing it your way. And I think that's something else that we wanted to communicate in the book that, you know, use the recipe as a starter for 10, um, particularly with things like chili levels. Um, and then, you know, if you want to play around with it a bit, feel free because mm. they certainly do. Um, and the other thing I loved to see was the fact that they cook seasonally, obviously. they, they Yes, you can't go to Sainsbury's and, and get all, 24-7 or 360 all right through the year or all the ingredients that you want. Exactly. So in the way that food is moving here for us to be much more aware of where it's come from, to have fresh seasonal produce, that's what these women have been doing already for, for generations, actually. Um, and so seeing... Just just appreciating that, appreciating the fact that it's fresh, that vegetables are often the star of the show. Um, that I, I think I came back and I looked at our kind of meat and two veg and sometimes, you know, it would be plain broccoli and plain carrots here. And I would think how horrified the woman would be because you don't get a plain vegetable in it. It doesn't exist. I mean, exist. I mean, it's something about the climate that, that, that means that has to happen. But yeah, but it's, it's a completely different way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I've I've just loved that whole process of kind of education and myth busting, myth busting the, you know, Indian food is unhealthy. It's complicated. It takes ages. You know, all of that is wrong. Um, I mean, sometimes it can be some of those. Well, like things. any food but, can be. Yeah. But seeing the, the way that these women cooked, um, you know, it's quick, it's fresh, it's seasonal, it's tasty, it's inexpensive. Fantastic. Mm. 
Well, Amanda, thank you so much for opening this whole area. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm, I have to confess, I'm not really a cook, but it is a fascinating area. I certainly enjoy food and I certainly enjoy my Indian food. But I think what's also fascinating is that we can look at this in so many levels. You just talked about the whole practical side of, of, of the cooking and different styles and culture. But also what's behind that in terms of the dignity given to these women and these families living in these slum communities and how we share a common bond with them in terms of we're all part of families, how we all want good food for our families as well and to enjoy time together. And that doesn't take money or material. You know, it takes the food, but you can do that anyway in a slum or in a mansion or whatever. It's about the relationships that, that matter and count. And I'm also reminded uh, there's this, in terms of if we think of the work of Usher, and it's very easy for us living in, in the West in, in, our, in our relative affluence to think about the huge needs out there in terms of poverty and lack of resources and think there's nothing I can do. And yet I think what Asha illustrates is with these human stories, the difference that can be made. There's a lovely story about a man walking by a beach and there are a man and a child walking by a beach and there's loads of starfish that have landed, that have come onto the shore and they're all dying. And the, the little child goes and he throws, he takes one of the starfish and he throws it back into the water. And, 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 and the father who's with him, the older man who's with him, sort of says, you know, what can you do? There are just so many of them. It's, it's just impossible. There's no way you, you can make a difference to all these starfish. And the little boy in his wisdom says, well, he picks up one starfish and so says, I'm making a difference in this, this starfish's life and throws it back in the sea again. And in many ways, that's what Asha shows. And again, going back to Kieran Martin and, 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 uh, uh, and the work of Usher is they worked in the lives of individuals to make difference for those people. Yes, there's still millions of people in slums. Yes, there's still big issues of poverty, but you can make a difference. And to do that in a way that is not, as it were, patronizing, not in a way that is just um, trying to just do good uh, to, to make my to, to make me feel good. Um, I just think, you know, and again, just quoting from uh, Kieran in, in her book, uh, and she, she she writes the introduction. She says, I think this is one of the most, and she's talking about the book, I think it's one of the most beautiful and special ways of expressing how you can join hearts together across the world. This is a unique way that people from the slums can bring their recipes and share them, their food with people from all over the world. Imagine the joy they feel knowing others are cooking their food in their kitchen far, far away. They're so excited because this is not something that has ever happened before. And again, this is, Amanda, again, thank you for a, what a remarkable book again and for having the audacity to write an Indian cookbook <laughs> not being an Indian when they actually see their faces in the book with their recipes there and there's some again some beautiful faces of these wonderful uh, people can you imagine the validation of who they are as people the kind of affirmation it gives them and actually just to say because obviously they've seen the book and have you seen some of their reactions and some of the comments they've made yeah I've had two opportunities since the book came out to go back and spend time with them um this year actually I've done it a couple of times and this time we actually laminated pages of the book and we took them to the women so they got a, a kind of permanent record if you like of their recipe with their oh, face awesome. and we presented them um to the women um and that and it was just lovely and they just beam I mean they just beam and I was explaining to them that um we know through Amazon and through you know contacts and friends of ours and people in our network that the cookbook has gone to France it's gone to Italy it's gone to Germany it's gone to Scandinavia it's gone to Portugal um it's the American edition has just launched 
and some books have just gone out to Australia. So, you know, their food really is going all around the world and their faces and their recipes. And I think that is just such a beautiful thing because it's giving these women affirmation. It's validating them. It's showing them that they matter, that they're not invisible, that they have a voice, that their food is is beautiful and and it's just lovely and yeah it, it's just been such a privilege to be able to take the book back and show them um and see their smiles and and their laughter sometimes they just burst out laughing they can't quite believe it actually <laughs> who could have imagined it yes yeah. thank you man again so much i mean I, i'm going to close with again uh, a quote from kieran at, at the beginning of the book and she says and this is to you, uh, Alison. I feel that that it's going to be such a blessing to you, the reader, as well, because you join your heart, and you've illustrated that to us, Amanda, with somebody. Uh, well, sorry, she's talking to the reader. You, you join your heart with somebody you, you may not have met that person, but it's a joining of the heart. It's a joining of the spirit. There's a very deep and rich experience that both sides can share together as a result of these delicious recipes and touching stories. They are imagining you enjoying their food, and you are thinking about the people who created who, who created it. You stand sh- and share it, sharing it with you, giving them the honour and respect for the skills they possess. Uh, so again, just to remind it, it's the book is called Hope and Spice, Authentic Recipes and Stories of Transformation from the Slums of Delhi. You can get it from the hopeandspice.com website or you can get it from Amazon. Um, and uh, yeah, and enjoy tasty cooking. So thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Thank you. And uh, do join us again. God bless. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.